Greetings, I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. Welcome. After all is said and done, then we will know, won't we? But perhaps we can know now, if we choose to. Perhaps you saw word concerning an experiment that was done uh, to <laughs> to help us uh, avoid being destroyed. Yes, this was undertaken by the National Near-Earth Object Preparedness Strategy and Action Plan, published by the White House. And it was carried out at the 2019 Planetary Defense Conference in College Park, Maryland, land of University of Maryland, which has been named the number one party school in the United States of America any number of times. But what this was about is that there was a NASA simulation of a fictional scenario, and that was that an asteroid would hit New York City. An asteroid which would be packing a punch that would be enormously greater than that of the destruction wrought by the nuclear bombs dropped, the atom bombs dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. But this was a worst-case scenario. And uh, it was to determine what would happen if this object should manage to get past our defenses and actually strike the United States of America, specifically New York City, and more specifically Manhattan. And they determined, by the end of the exercise, they determined that the only way to save New Yorkers was to evacuate New York City. So how large an asteroid are we talking about? They started off with one that was <laughs> much larger, and then they launched spacecrafts to deflect it, and a fragment of it was broken off, continued hurtling towards North America, and finally the size was only approximately 200 feet in diameter. Yes. Well, fortunately, they stated that no known asteroid poses a significant risk of impact with Earth over the next 100 years. So we can all <laughs> we can all take a have a deep sigh of relief. This is not going to happen. They guarantee it. And if you care to go by their guarantees, be my guest. But when they talk about numbers such as 1,000 times the destructive force of the bombs that hit Nagasaki and Hiroshima, this is simply one more instance of the destructive force in what is referred to as nature 
being ever so much more powerful than anything even that man can devise. Now, mind you, modern nuclear weapons also are vastly more destructive than those bombs were. But (laughs) if you look at the destructive force of volcanoes and earthquakes and tsunamis and, in this case, asteroids or comets, it is truly awesome the power that can be brought to bear here on this earth, not by man-made devices, but by what may be termed acts of nature or natural disasters and so on and so forth. As I've mentioned before, long ago, back in the dark, dark, dark ages of <laughs> you know, 200 to 300 years ago, here in what is now the United States of America, in this country of America, our forebears, or at least the forebears of some of us, believed that when terrible things happened, that these things were a judgment from God, and they would turn even more zealously towards God and pray and fast and so on and so forth. But we are so enlightened. We know that, that nothing could be further from the truth, that these things, they have nothing to do with our waywardness and rebelliousness and so forth. Speaking of wayward, rebellious people, you've no doubt noticed uh, that there are quite a few individuals who have announced their candidacies for the presidency of the United States of America. Yes, and I saw where supposedly more than 450 candidates had registered. Of course, I I think it's fair to say that almost all of those are registered Democrat candidates, and then some independents and so forth, but uh, not too many on the Republican side, I do not believe, other than the incumbent president. But I'm guessing that number will probably increase (laughs) to, you know, it's so close. Wouldn't it be nice if it got up to around 500 candidates for president? Well... We have how long until the election? It's approximately 540 to 550 days. So maybe by the time it gets to be 500 days, maybe we will have 500 candidates. And this uh, some may take exception to. If you've listened to this program, you know I am not a fan. I am not a uh, Uh, devotee of the incumbent. That being said, despite (laughs) the president, and I do say that, despite the president, the presidential administration has nonetheless done many good things. I know a tremendous number of people would disagree with that, mostly Democrats. (laughs) But nonetheless, there have been many many signal achievements uh, by this administration 
not chiefly <laughs> the doing of the president. But with regard to the president, I uh, came across a comment or two from him that I thought were just too good not to share. So I have to. But starting off, that North Korea, land of the free, home of the brave, communist regime, family business of the Kim family there, North Korea, it, uh, the regime saw fit to fire a number of short-range rockets, missiles, here very recently, seemingly to uh, give voice to their displeasure uh, with the president and his administration, not giving them everything that they want. But uh, the president had his uh, reaction to this, which I thought was just really precious. And uh, he stated the following concerning this, because some had opined that, oh, oh, this is bad for the president. This uh, will undermine his tremendous achievements that he's made (laughs) with North Korea's regime. And he himself, he has repeatedly referred to his work with North Korea as being, you know, just this outstanding achievement, which, of course, he deserves the Nobel Peace Prize for, among other things. But in any case, he said the following. And he, he uh, I shouldn't say said, he wrote this on Twitter, okay, this past uh, weekend. Quote, I believe that Kim Jong-un fully realizes the great economic potential of North Korea and will do nothing to interfere or end it. He also knows that I am with him and does not want to break his promise to me. Deal will happen. Yes, our president is not the most literate individual, or at least (laughs) not when he uses Twitter. But, you know, after all, that's the whole beauty of Twitter, right, is that you you don't bother with proper (laughs) grammar or anything else. You just, you wing it. I mean, it is absolutely in the the president's wheelhouse. But uh, so just to go back over his remarkable, breathtakingly impressive statement, quote, I believe that Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-un, fully realizes the great economic potential of North Korea. Really? Well, uh, stop for one moment. The great economic potential of North Korea, which has been propped up by communist China and former Soviet Union and now Russia, it has been propped up by them And it has managed to get by 
merely, the regime merely starving millions to death, uh, especially those that it uh, is least favorably inclined towards, you know, whom they put away in concentration camps, chiefly Christians and and other such rabble. But uh, (laughs) when they're not selling nuclear materials to (laughs) various nations, you know, then they have to count on the the charity of Communist China, Russian Federation, United Nations, whomever, and, of course, now, United States of America. But that this Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-un, uh, he realizes that just, just this enormous economic potential of North Korea, and he won't do anything to interfere or end it, right? Okay, well... He also knows that I, the Donald, I, the commander-in-chief of the United States of America, I, the most powerful man in the world, I am with him and does not want to break his promise to me, deal will happen. (laughs) Pardon me. Uh, He also knows that I am with him and he, presumably, does not want to break his promise to me. Oh, now why is it that Kim Young-un would not want to break his promise to President Trump? Why is that? If you look at the communist regimes and the former communist regimes, which are now some other version of totalitarian, authoritarian, regimes, you will find certain defining characteristics. And one is this, that they lie and lie and lie and lie, just as did Bill and Hillary. Absolute habitual liars, habitual promise breakers, habitual treaty breakers, whether it happens to be former Soviet Union or bloody red China or bloody North Korea, happens to be Vladimir Putin's regime in Russia or formerly Fidel Castro's in Cuba and Raul's in Cuba and the Venezuelan regime, Yasser Arafat's (laughs) regime, so forth. You find this, that there is continual, constant lying and deception and deceit, constant, continual, unremitting dishonesty. But he will not want to break his promise to me. Deal will happen. Wow. That's right out of The Apprentice. Deal will happen. I mean, isn't it really, you know, it's exciting. We have so much to look forward to. But in any case, moving right along with regard to the benefactors of North Korea. Yes, Russia. Yes, former Soviet Union, now 
authoritarian, t- totalitarian. Uh, it's been likened to a mafia regime, <laughs> rightly so, with the Russian mafia. And then we have communist red China, bloody red China. And, and then the comparatively inconsequential North Korea, which is not inconsequential. You know, they have a standing army in excess of one million. They have the largest submarine force in the world. It's not the most advanced, but it's the largest, the most numerous. And they have nuclear weapons. And now ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles and cruise missiles and what have you. Courtesy of, oh, they have, they've developed all of these things themselves. Really, just the same way that North Vietnam, the Viet Cong, developed their weapons systems. Yeah, they imported them from communist China and Soviet Union. That's right. And their fighter aircraft were piloted by <laughs> pilots from communist China and so forth. But same difference here. This is where they get their technology. <laughs> yes, it's the unspoken dirty secret is that North Korea, as I've mentioned many times before, is a satellite slave state of communist China and former Soviet Union Russia. But when you look at Russia, you really take a good look at Russia and at communist China, you will find, I mean, there's so many similarities. They're breathtaking, really. And what they do in dealing with dissidents, when I say dissidents, I'm not talking about terrorists now. I'm not talking about domestic terrorists. I'm talking about Christians and Jews, overwhelmingly Jews and Christians, Christians and Jews. Dissidents. Some dissidents are agnostics. Or atheists, you do find that. But they are dissenting from the regime's practices. They are opposing, protesting the ruthless, murderous, heinous actions of these regimes. (laughs) In the case of communist China... All they have to be doing is worshiping God, worshiping Jesus Christ. That is a de facto form of dissent. That's why the overwhelming majority of dissenters are Christians and Jews, because they, they don't have to be doing anything actively to protest the regime to be a dissenter. All they have to be doing is worshiping someone other than the head of the regime. And that is a terrible offense and transgression. Egregious, terrible offense. Terrible insult to the leader of the regime. If you don't believe me, look at the prior Kim regimes. (laughs) It's all been one regime, but the ancestors of Lil Youngin here. And you will find with his father and his grandfather that they required themselves to be worshipped, actively worshipped 
as God, in the place of God. In the place of God and in the place of Jesus Christ. And even in the place of the Holy Ghost. Absolutely astonishing, but true. But so, what happens to these dissenters? I mean, in addition to being the leaders, especially the leaders, so pastors, evangelists, missionaries, all the way down to Sunday school teachers and nursery workers, if you can imagine that, nursery workers with toddlers and babies at church during church services, these people have been rounded up in many cases, spirited away to black jails, black cells, meaning covert, <laughs> hidden, secret facilities, imprisoned, tortured, violated, terrorized, what have you, and subjected to all manner of evils. And subjected to kangaroo court hearings at which they are accused of and convicted of, drum roll please, fraud. That's right, fraud. And what's number two after fraud? Corruption. Or what's number two after corruption? Fraud. Fraud corruption, all manner of other things like this. But these (laughs) you will find over and over and over and over and over again. And the really extraordinary thing about this is that lo and behold, the communist regime of China is very intimately involved with the mafia, not the Italian mafia, the Chinese mafia, with organized crime in China, which they allow to flourish. They use them. They use their gangs as their strongmen to attack the Christians, to attack the churches. It's a fact. They use them to attack the democracy protesters, going back to Tiananmen Square, and also in Hong Kong, and even (laughs) involvement with regard to Taiwan, over in Taiwan. But they are directly involved with organized crime. As they are in Macau, they are absolutely in bed with organized crime. And yet, every time... (laughs) that they attack these pastors and ministers and evangelists and missionaries and church workers and so forth, they will accuse them of these trumped-up, obscene charges. But they don't limit it to Christians. No, there are unbelieving philosophers and poets, poet laureates and, and what have you, that they also subject to the same kinds of things. And an occasional you know, a Buddhist monk and what have you. But any that are viewed as being opposed, actively opposed to the regime, 
And again, that active opposition can take many forms. <laughs> it doesn't even have to be peaceful protest. It can simply be worshiping God, teaching people about the Lord, trying to bring people to salvation. That is more than sufficient. Well, what about Russia? <laughs> what about Vladimir Putin, former KGB head as, and before that, an agent, and he, all of his involvement with the state apparatus, the secret service apparatus, which just happens to be headquartered there in the Kremlin, along with his presidential palace, but and many other things there. It's a fabulous, uh, you could call it a campus, <laughs> fabulous facility, but It has dungeons in the KGB headquarters and such. But what about him? What just so happens, his regime, again, intimately involved with the Russian mafia, with organized crime. And again, dissenters, opposition, opponents. And this includes oligarchs whom he wants the billions of, and he he has uh, business dealings with and so forth, if they don't play along with him, he will unleash his fury at them and, again, bring them up on charges of fraud and corruption. This has happened over and over and over again. Now, normally with the journalists, they normally just assassinate them. That's The, the usual is just assassination, and it's not to say that uh, no political opponents uh, are ever assassinated, because in point of fact, they are. But nonetheless, he is fond of sending them off to Siberia for a long time, uh, and hopefully never to return. So these are some common earmarks or identifying characteristics of these wonderful, enlightened regimes of superpower, Enemies of the United States of America. But Richard Milhouse Nixon, in all of his wisdom, at, at the behest of dear Dr. Henry Kissinger, of course, he brought about this peace with honor with Mao Zedong, as bloody and monstrous a mass murderer as there has ever been. But clinking the glasses and smiling and, yes, having a, a panic retreat from Vietnam for our military. But, and leaving the South Vietnamese people hanging out to dry. But China and Russia, they have entered into one after another after another of various pacts and treaties and agreements and relationships here in the past few years. Yes, Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, they are truly BFFs, and uh, they are in agreement on so very much. And here they had... They've been having, on a yearly basis, an annual basis, they've been having a joint sea drill. 
a type of war games where their navies get together, representatives of their navies get together and engage in these naval exercises. Yes. And, of course, they're all focused on peace. I mean, the whole focus of this is peace. It's all about peace. It's not about aggression. It's, it's not about actually doing dry runs of anything having to do with aggression towards the free world. Heavens no. This is all about peace. <laughs> they engage in these Sino-Russian naval joint activities every year. And uh, they like to engage in these in the South China Sea and other locations. Uh, they like to do so, you know, between the mainland of China and South Korea, Japan. That is another excellent uh, location for that. For such things, they like to have close flybys, uh, not only of U.S. naval ships, but also of Japan's and South Korea's. But again, it's all in the interest of peace. They only want peace and prosperity. That's all they want, peace and prosperity, Western-style peace and prosperity. Meanwhile, they also have been getting together not only having their naval exercises, but having land exercises, anti-terrorist peace missions on an annual basis. Peace missions, yes. Anti-terrorist peace missions in which they work together along with, interestingly enough, uh, the roll call includes other former Soviet Nations. That's right. Ones such as Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. Yeah, just to name a few. But they get together to engage in these anti terrorist, explicitly anti terrorist dry runs, if you will. But the really fascinating part about it is. You know, terrorists normally are identified with what? Oh, IEDs, improvised explosive devices. Yes, that is their, you know, a number one uh, type of weapon that they use. Other things. So, uh, what are they called? Pressure cooker bombs. Bombs of all manner of varieties, you know, homemade devices, suicide bombs, suicide bomb vests, rocket-propelled grenades. These are some of the weapons that, and and AK-47s, but some of the weapon types that are synonymous with terrorists, with Islamist terrorists. They didn't say anything about Islamist in this, but Islamist terrorists, because (laughs) that is essentially uh, uh, the extent of terrorism in the world. Yes, there is some by various uh, 
Hindu so-called extremists and other such, but overwhelmingly it is Islamist or it's communist, but we can't refer to communist terrorism as terrorism because, after all, communist China is involved here. So that doesn't count. But, you know, the communist terrorism in the Philippines, in Mindanao, and so forth. And then, of course, the terrorism by the drug cartels and such as that, which is of a different tenor, just as vicious and ruthless and monstrous, but uh, typically the, uh, the type of weaponry varies uh, somewhat. But in any case, these peace activities that were engaged in back in 2014 and continue to be engaged in annually, interestingly enough, in their war games, in which they have the good guys <laughs> and the bad guys, well, their bad guys are supposedly terrorists, and yet they are operating tanks and armored personnel carriers and artillery pieces. So, in other words, operating the same kind of weaponry that the good guys are using. This is full-scale conventional warfare between major armies. I'm sure you're aware that here in the United States of America, going back to Jimmy Carter, Jimmy James Earl Carter Jr., trust me, Carter, uh, that the focus has been on lighter, faster, nimbler military because we no longer have any major land battles to ever, ever be concerned about ever again. Never again. It's just little comparatively limited engagements with terrorists, with rogue regimes, with that sort of thing. And so we need to have this lightning fast uh, engagement from uh, you know, special forces and so forth. But interestingly enough, these peace games have focused on the exact opposite. Before I go any further, let me just say, I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. And whatever is right and true and good in this program is thanks to God Almighty and His Holy Son, Jesus Christ. Whatever is wrong, erring, lacking, deficient is due to me. But in addition to absolute state-of-the-art tanks and infantry fighting vehicles and so forth, they also have made heavy use of aircraft. That's right. Uh, so in addition to the tanks and these artillery pieces, there are great big self-propelled howitzers and so forth. They also have been making heavy use of aircraft. Aircraft from fighter aircraft, fighter bombers, helicopters, unmanned drones, the most sophisticated unmanned drones. Now, I mentioned before, North Korea gets its technology not from its R&D labs, 
but from communist China and former Soviet Union, Russia. So where do China and Russia get their technology? From the United States of America. That is right. (laughs) From hacking (laughs) our Defense Department and military contractors and what have you, and obtaining all of the plans, all of the blueprints, all of the information concerning all of the most state-of-the-art weapons systems that have been developed at enormous expense. And they managed to get them all, without exception, all, and then they tweak them for their own personal preferences and what have you. And meanwhile, nations like Taiwan and Israel, they have to make do with something else because, of course, we can't bring ourselves to sell armaments to them. (laughs) But meanwhile, we, in essence, give them to the communist Chinese and the Russians and, by way of China, to North Korea by allowing them to steal them from us, the plans for them. But in any case, uh, these state-of-the-art drones, they are, interestingly enough, being used by China in a way they haven't been used by the United States of America heretofore or other Western nations, and that is using them in... Full-scale warfare operations uh, uh, and against very, very well-armed opponents. And uh, anyway, uh, but again, this is all peace. It's all about peace. This, This whole engagement, it's the annual event. It is peace mission. Peace, peace, peace. So... No need to fear. It is a peace mission, and it is focused on responding to terrorism. It's anti-terrorist, that's all. Of course, again, this is focused on confronting and defeating terrorists that operate full-scale conventional armies. (laughs) Interesting, interesting about that. It's just, you know, it's a curiosity, I'm sure, It is just a, you know, call it a coincidence uh, that uh, these various uh, elements, they they speak of a world war scenario instead against, oh, a very, very well-armed major opponent superpower like the United States of America and the NATO forces. But anyway, these terrorists are described as being externally backed separatists, using terrorist incidents to launch a coup and divide the nation. (laughs) Yes. Hmm. Well, anyway, that's just something uh, kind of reminiscent of Ukraine, but in that case, of course, the terrorists (laughs) consisted of Russia and and pro-Russian separatists whom they trained (laughs) and whom they sent. Now, I didn't mention anything about the other elements of hybrid warfare in in this description. 
I did not refer to them attacking, using hackers and attacking the electrical grids, the power grids. I didn't refer to them using neutron bombs to knock out the military of the opponents. I didn't refer to any of these kinds of things. But those are all other elements that they incorporate, that Russia incorporates in its hybrid warfare. And, of course, communist China will as well, not to mention North Korea, which has a major computer hacking network there in North Korea. But something else that uh, I happened to notice is, and I may have made mention of before, but I don't believe so, was that uh, this boycott, divestment, and sanctions campaign against Israel being waged in the Western nations against terrible, evil, odious Israel, uh, it is, interestingly enough, choosing to break the rules. I know that just sounds impossible that they would break the rules. You'd think they would be you know, operating by the Marquis of Queensbury rules. But no, breaking the rules of Twitter, that favorite forum of our president, Twitter, they, this group has been breaking the rules and they have been saturating Twitter with hundreds and hundreds of Twitter bots <laughs> that caused this mass, mass attack of Israel. Uh, as, as It's just extraordinary. It's, it's hard to believe. It really is. But uh, So they said that the tweets from these Twitter bots had a potential reach of about 10 million users. That's right. To cause people to boycott Israel. Uh, and boycotting what? Boycotting something militaristic or something like that? Or No, no, actually, actually not. It actually happens to be boycotting this year's Eurovision Song Contest, <laughs> which is due to be held in Tel Aviv. Oh, just amazing. But when I saw that, I couldn't help but think, aha, is there a possibility? I know Donald Trump owns Twitter. (laughs) He, He is the master of Twitter. But is it possible that even such social media as Twitter can be utilized in this hybrid warfare Ah, probably not. Probably not. But anyway, uh, Bill Clinton. uh, Do you recall Bill Clinton? He was president of this nation for eight years. (laughs) Yes, uh, with his uh, his uh, love of his life, uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Um, They were co-presidents, and I don't. I'm not making that up. He was the one who announced that they were co-presidents, but uh, Bill Clinton did. But back in 2000, in the year 2000, speaking of Hong Kong and China and such things, but focus, the focus here is on China, most favored nation, China, BFF, uh, China's 
you know, quasi-communist regime, actually just a bunch of, you know, capitalists who want the same thing we want. You know, peace, prosperity, love, you know, all that. Anyway, he said that there were hawks and pessimists who were stuck in the past who saw China stubbornly remaining the world's last great communist dragon and a threat to stability in Asia. End quote. Terrible. Really, are there, are there such terrible people as that that would think that of China, that would think that, you know, the peace-loving communist regime of China <laughs> is a threat to stability in Asia? Oh, my. Oh, my. Well, anyway, he actually did say that. Uh, but he's a visionary, you know. He's a visionary thinker, and, and he probably didn't mean to ruffle any feathers with what he said. But meanwhile, of course, peace-loving communist China uh, is demonstrating its peacefulness, its love for democracy and for all things capitalistic in its dealings with Hong Kong. That's right. Well, going back to just, you know, three years before our former president's statement, actually uh, a little less than that, but back uh, on July 1st, 1997, Britain officially handed over Hong Kong to communist China. Oh, bravo. Bravo, Britain. Oh, Britain. Bravo. Well, the British flag was brought down, China's flag, and and a new Hong Kong flag were run up the flagpole. That's right. And so China became ruler over Hong Kong, ending 150 years, one and one-half centuries of terrible, despotic, Western British colonial rule, right? So, those imperialists, yeah. So, as it was stated by... Chinese President, then Chinese President Zhang Zemin, quote, under the one country, two systems formula that was being, well, it was a short quote, (laughs) promised, that was promised in his handover speech, it would be implemented unswervingly. Hong Kong would retain its capitalist financial market, freedom of expression, and partial, partial democracy for at least 50 years, at least one half of a century. That was 20 years ago. Uh, Pardon me. I think that's 30 years ago, isn't it? I don't know. I've lost track. What was it? 1997... 2007, 2017, 22 years ago. Okay. I, I got that confused with the anniversary of Tiananmen Square massacre by the communist Chinese, which was 30 years ago, back in 1989. But this, this was eight years after capitalist, peace-loving, freedom-loving, communist 
China's slaughter of somewhere between many hundreds all the way up to many thousands of young people, predominantly, overwhelmingly college students, who were pro-democracy protesters in Beijing, the capital of communist China. But I digress. So with regard to the handover of Hong Kong to the communist Chinese, they were guaranteed by the then president, head of communist China, head of the Communist Party, that they would retain capitalist financial market, freedom of expression, partial democracy for at least one half of a century. And that in fact, that it was intimated that it would be segueing over to a self-governing situation. But anyway, you know, things are said, you know, in the heat of the moment. And, and, you know, perhaps he really sincerely meant what he said, perhaps. Well, things have changed. (laughs) Things have changed a bit. Yes, yes, they have in Hong Kong. Who could have foreseen that? Well, interestingly enough, back when it was announced that there would be this horrendous, disgraceful action by Britain handing over this vibrant, rich, successful city of millions and millions of people over to the communist, bloody communist regime that slaughtered these best and brightest young people in their capital. At the time that that became official, people that had an ounce of wisdom started preparing to leave. And the departure, the exodus from Hong Kong grew and grew and peaked before this took place, before this capitulation by Britain, this cowardly, disgraceful capitulation by Britain. But I know back in 1990, and it was going on before that, again, 89, but 1990, 1991, and so forth, Vancouver, British Columbia, came to be known popularly as Hong Coover. Hong Coover. And I saw figures, and they differed, but anywhere from 95% upwards of inbound international arrivals were from Hong Kong. Families moved. They sold their businesses for what they could get for them, or they left a remnant back home to run the businesses. They pooled their resources, took them with them, and headed for British Columbia because of the relationship. After all, Hong Kong, 
was part of the British Commonwealth, and they headed for Vancouver. And they pooled their resources and they bought up everything that they could. So they started over again. And they had a lot to start with because Hong Kong had the most expensive real estate in the world. (laughs) But they purchased everything, you know, in sight. But there were a whole lot of purchasers. And that was in Vancouver, in Victoria, B.C., and elsewhere. And the heretofore native population in Vancouver, to a very great extent, sold and left and went inland up the Fraser River Valley. But I did not intend to get off into that. But suffice to say, there was a mass exodus from Hong Kong. But meanwhile... Others thought, what a, what a great place. <laughs> what a great place. And so as people left, other people came in. I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. After all is said and done, then we will know, won't we? But perhaps we can know now if we choose to. Thank you.